This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookings. Welcome to Bookends with Ruth Todd and Moran Raj. And Ruth is talking today with Auckland writer Patricia Bell, who has a debut novel called The Library of Unfinished Business. And I'm talking with writer, art critic, painter, poet, um, a man who does everything well, Gregory O'Brien, who has a new collection of poetry and paintings out. Streets and mountains. As the cloud reads the orchard, a swimmer reads the curve of the bay, an ice skater reads the surface of the half-frozen lake, and in season, a fisherman reads the pattern of seabirds. As a chair reads its position at the table, an aeroplane reads the evening sky and finds a way through. The weather reads the furrowed brow of the forecaster and is itself in turn read. As ever, a bird reads the absence of birds above a certain field. Just as the streets read the mountains, the mountains, the streets, and have as much to say, as much to say. That was Greg O'Brien reading from his latest collection of poems and poetry called House and Contents. C.K. Stead has said of Greg that he loves beautiful things and creates them of words and in paint. He's a, not just a painter and a poet. He's a non-fiction writer and an art curator and has been given many awards. The Arts Foundation Laureate the Prime Minister's Award for Literary Achievement. Uh, He is a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit and he now has an honorary doctorate from Victoria University of Wellington. Greg, you don't seem like uh, you're in... That makes it sound like you're, you know, sort of reaching the apex, but I think you've got many more mountain peaks to to ascend in your career. (laughs) Oh, well, I'd like to think so. I think I'm just warming up, actually. I think... um yeah, certainly doing House and Contents was a really exciting project for me because I guess this is the first time I've been able to do a book with uh, you know a whole lot of colour paintings of mine because the book's got about I think it's about twenty or twenty five paintings reproduced and they're shown alongside my kind of poetry and um, I suppose for me that's sort of almost been the story of my life in essence I think or you know in a very fundamental way since I was very young I've always loved painting I've always loved poetry you know they're the bottom line those two things for me and. With this book, I guess I get the conversation going between the two of them sort of in one place. And for me, that was thrilling. And, and, and I don't know, it does, feel, it does feel... I mean, I suppose every book should feel like an adventure, so I certainly don't feel like I'm resting on my laurels or cruising along. I just feel <laughs> no. moment, like I'm jumping into the deep end and going for it at the moment. I, I wondered about your skills and your, you know, love of being a curator... Um, so it must come into you must be using them all the time when you're putting a collection like this together Oh, I think completely Moran yeah I mean it's 
And sometimes, I mean, what curators do is they bring things together so that they talk to one another. You know, when you're hanging an exhibition, you know, paintings become different. or they, New things emerge when you change the way they're hung, the company they keep, the, um, the rhythm that they might establish in a room or the kind of emphasis, you know. And I certainly know that through years and years of curating, and I'm still curating sporadically at the moment. I mean, I've been working on a, an Elizabeth Thompson exhibition, which has been touring the South Island, actually, for the last couple of years. Um, and also another exhibition with Ewan McLeod and my own work. So I'm, I'm still being a curator, but I do think there's a real strong connection there because it is to do with the placement of things. And I guess as a poet or a painter, certainly the way I work, what I'm doing is I'm bringing images and things together, putting them together, hopefully, so that the, that kind of electricity is sort of set, set in motion, um, you know, through metaphor, but also just just through the presence and the sound of the words and how they're placed, all the, all the objects in the painting, and I guess with curating, you know, you're putting um, paintings in a room, whereas very much with a book like House and Contents, I'm, you know, in a way I'm filling up the space of the book, which is a kind of almost an architectural space, if you think of the pages as being like rooms. You know, I'm bringing things in there and seeing what goes well next to some other thing and what goes well before it and after it. Um, you know, the centre of gravity moves around. Um, you have your loud passages and your quiet passages, your... <clears throat> moments of stillness and then other, you know, um, more dynamic kind of moments. So for me, I mean, I do lo- I love, bo- I love making books. I love the architecture of the book because to me it is like a big building full of rooms and you're kind of um, moving the furniture around to make something miraculous happen, hopefully. Yeah, well, it does. I, I loved it. And it's an object that I want to keep and um, and have to look at as much as to delve into the title I do think um, I do love books I think I only love books more and more as I get older the more advanced the internet becomes and the computer becomes um, I don't know it somehow makes me really love the book more you know and you know with this book I do think Auckland University Press were great to deal with they used fantastic paper stock you know I said to them you know we'll need to use something special because the paintings need to look good and um, um, God bless them, they just completely agreed with me and um, so we sort of went to town really and made a beautiful book um, and I think that's an important thing. Yes, I have to say I've been moving it around my house and putting it in different positions because I just love the look of it. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Celia Shanity designed the cover and the inside and she's she's a marvel too, so you know, yeah. um, hail the book designer. I think it's an admirable and indispensable oh, profession. <laughs> oh, yes. Indeed it is. Just harking back to the title, um, of course, for House and Contents, um, and and how you have this this record of what earthquakes feel like and do and, and lead on to what are they telling us, as you say in one stage. This, of course, is so um, resonant with, with people like us down here. Oh, for sure. To be yeah, reminded... Yeah, to be reminded of how you can take nothing for granted. Yeah, yeah, and in a way that's true for all, you know for all of us everywhere too. Oh, all so, of um, life. So yeah, no, I'm aware. <laughs> I mean, in Wellington, I mean, we were the city. I moved from Auckland to the city that has always meant to be the earthquake capital of you know of the country, and so we sort of get them. But I guess we've had earthquakes in a, in a, a certainly in a less catastrophic manner. So. Um, I suppose in a way I can so talk, talk. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, I should watch what I say. Um, but um, 
to me, it makes you just yeah, just aware of I guess the kind of uh, instability of life on the planet, and also but also the kind of energy and the kind of um, the mystery and but I mean this is life in general anyway, isn't it? I mean mortality. Um, you know we can't control everything in our lives. Um, we try to. We we, we 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 live in houses. We surround ourselves in the things we love. We make our lives meaningful. But at the end of the day, um, you know we're just part of this thing, which is kind of the ecosystem, the, the the planetary life, you know, the, um, the, the 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 universe that we live in. So I guess there's a little bit of a sense of that, a sense of wonder, not too much dread, I think, but maybe one, one feels a kind of respect, but also a kind of, I do think, um, you know, <clears throat> as I mentioned in the book, you know, my wife Jenny and I lived in um, Alexandra down in central Otago for over a year. In fact, we were there for three months again last year, and we sort of fell in love with that sort of... Um, South Island interior, which was something I'd never experienced before in my life. But again, to me, that changed my sense of um, New Zealand, really. It was about a, a coming to awareness of New Zealand as an ancient geological place, you know, as a, um, a place, and but also incredibly powerful and mysterious and um, existing beyond the, the realms of, I guess, human control and, um, you know, cultivation and organization, you know, it was a... Um, place to me that had a kind of almost a kind of mystical feeling and I feel that through a lot of the South Island too you know um, it's a great um, Te Waipanamu is very powerful and, um, and mysterious and, and worthy of respect and, but also of love So that brings us very neatly to um, unfortunately uh, the end in, the, in respect of you and I talking together but you're going to read us a final poem which relates to this time you spent in central Otago. Yeah, no, thanks, Warren. Yeah, and I'd like to like to finish with a, a poem called Sticks Crossing Upper Tairi. Um, I mentioned just that thing about the sense of geological time you had in the South Island, um, you know, which was, you know, of millions of years, basically. You're walking around on millions of years of rock, you know, when you, when you cross the road, basically. But also there was a sense, you know, of the human history there and, um, at one point, um, <clears throat> Graham Sidney, who was um, one of the organisers of the residency that Jenny, my wife, and I had in Alexandra, um, he took us for a drive to Sticks Crossing in the Upper Tairi, um, so quite near Middle March, I think. Um, but there was a place there, where there was an old building we went to, which was an old hotel, um, sort of off the beaten track now, on the, um, the old, what's it called, something, the Miners Route into central Otago. And so in this, I basically reimagine, I guess, the thing, the kinds of objects that were there, the kind of words that would have been spoken in that place during the gold mining era. So I guess this is talking, you know, 150 years ago. Um, and I guess there was a texture to the place that I found the language and the kind of objects I was thinking of to me seemed to kind of be in accord. So um, in some ways, it's almost like a list poem because it's got lots of things in it. But really, it's just sort of saying... Um, um, what we saw there, um, the, the hotel was run by a woman called Mrs. Grace, who used to bring the, um, um, the, the travellers across the little stream there on a punt, so she gets a mention. Um, the river is called Styx, of course, like the river in the underworld, but it's actually an actual river that is still flowing on the outskirts of um, central Otago. And, um, and so perhaps I'll read it. I'd just like the tone of it maybe to g give a sense of the kind of... Um, the, the past, and I guess I'm observing it. I travelled there with Graham Sidney and also with his <clears throat> dog Milo, 
who was a very old dog at the time, now deceased, who was completely blind. So we took this blind dog with us to this kind of, to the, I guess, the kind of remnants of a hotel in the middle of the Sinkotago landscape. Sticks crossing a Patairi. Gone without whisket and wilderberry, crystal apple and a hat rack in the sky, empty of what we were. Gone shoeless, bare-legged into the netherworld, with neither forwarding address nor date of return, emptied of what we were. With neither boatman nor Mrs. Grace's punt, gone without waders and burlap, and home James and don't spare the horses. You were frozen-footed, carrying a blind dog across the sticks, while I searched for my name among those carved into the strong room ceiling, from Jolly and Jolly Dunedin to Carol Joy Hislop, sadly departing this land, 26568, all of them gone beyond mountain mangle and all-seeing eye, gone without so much as a weather-beaten dog, mid-river, blind, carried. House and Contents by Gregory O'Brien is published by Auckland University Press. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. Patricia Bell is a writer, editor and proofreader, and her short stories, poems and non-fiction articles have been published in anthologies, literary journals and online. Her short story, Dandelion Clocks, won first prize in the 2021 New Zealand Society of Authors Graham Lay Short Story Competition. She was born in Northern Ireland to a Presbyterian minister from Belfast and a teacher from Motherwell, Scotland. She now lives with her daughter in Auckland, New Zealand, and is a trained singer and musical theatre performer, a bird nerd and conservation advocate, and a proudly loud feminist and a born-again agnostic. Welcome to the programme, Patricia. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. What an introduction. Well, uh, what what an introduction to have, um, <laughs> and I'm not surprised that with your uh, varied experiences and your um, father and mother being Irish and Scottish, no wonder you wrote a book like this, <laughs> because um, your debut novel, The Library of Unfinished Business, is what I'm talking about, and it's a breath fresh air to me. I had no idea what it would be about at all. Tell me how it came about. Did you have any inkling that that was what you wanted to write about? I I didn't have any preconceived ideas about what I wanted to write about. One day, about 12 years ago, I sat down and I wrote uh, a sentence, and the sentence was, this is the story of my jailbreak from heaven. And I didn't know where it would take me. And I thought, gosh, well, that's an interesting start for a short story. But 85,000 words later, and here we are, with a novel. Um, so uh, there are two different kinds of writers, they say. There are pantsers who fly by the seat of their pants, and there are plotters. And I started off as a pantser, and I just wrote what came out of my mind and my imagination. And then as I progressed and realized it was going to become a novel, I, I pulled back a bit, and I, and I started to plan and, and give it more structure, because otherwise I was just going to lose all, all the ideas and themes that I wanted to convey. But I find that as a writer, I will often write something, and it's not till I've written the first draft 
that I actually go back and I think, gosh, right, I see what I'm talking about here. I see what themes that I'm getting at. And they emerge naturally, I think. There's a saying for writers that no matter how far you wander, you always end up back at your own doorstep. So I think the things that preoccupy us as writers, that we think about, that we lie awake at night wondering about, they come out in our writing. And this is what happened with this book, but I, I didn't realize that until I was a fair way into it. And then, of course, I edited and rewrote and refined all those things. And I ended up with a book that is funny, I hope. And Very uh, funny. Unexpected. <laughs> yes, thank you. And unexpected and unique, but also that talks about important things like the power of storytelling, uh, the importance of living uh, bravely and living now and telling the people we love that we love them, and the importance around the ideas of second chances and redemption. And that well, all, of that. Can yes, save all our of that is there. And it, um, it was, did you, how did you think, feel about writing it in letter form? Because we've got two main characters the father who has had a car accident and is now in heaven, has arrived yes. in heaven, and he's Morris Tugwood, who was a librarian, um, not a well-known librarian, not a very well-known character. Um, he didn't really get on with his daughter very much. He was pretty small-time and didn't have much passion in his life. In fact, he could have been quite boring. And Andy found him so, Andy, his daughter, and she has to write the eulogy for the funeral um, and is finding that very difficult because she didn't really know much about her father. Letters, the form of letter writing was a very good one. I think it's interesting because I always used to hate novels that wrote in letter form. Interestingly <laughs> enough, I used to complain about them to my book club. And look what really? happened. I've written a book where, yes, <laughs> where one of my protagonists writes in letter form. But do you know what? It works. It just came naturally. I felt the importance in this book of language and words and trying to communicate. You know, she's trying to communicate with her father, even though he's no longer there. And the letter form simply worked because Andy's an aspiring writer. And the only thing she can think of to do with her grief is to write it down. And so it worked. And I, I hope that it worked, the switching between Andy's letters and then following Morris's adventures in this very strange afterlife. And then the way those two paths actually intersect at a certain point in the novel. I won't spoil the surprise of what happens then. But I hope it no. worked having two very distinct voices and two different styles of narration. And uh, But they do sort of meet eventually and uh, something very important happens. And again, I won't say what. No. Of course not. And I, I agree. I I mean, I was it's a page turner as well because I'm thinking, oh, I want to read the next letter from Andy or I read, I'll have to read that quickly, you know, because they're all alternate chapters. And, um, and then uh, Auntie Fleur was staying with her, her father's sister, and uh, yes. She she was um, she popped in a letter just towards the end I think um, I can't yes, remember two exactly letters what. she writes to Morris herself yes yes and so that was just a little um, switch that didn't deter me <laughs> and uh, I rather I just I just thought the letter writing was perfect because again there was that um, uh, meaty part of the story about love. Um, 
love is all there is, really, in the end, and and uh, forgiveness, and there were the things that you've mentioned already. So those were the things that I was left with to think about after I closed the book, and yet I had had uh, quite a uh, an energetic sort of imaginative um, narrative. Um, especially, you know, they, he couldn't find God. God had seemed to have disappeared from heaven at the moment. And um, there were lots of things happening in heaven. And um, I loved that. I loved that part. And uh, I'm hoping and, it provides a really good contrast between Andy's letters and then the excitement and the, the pace of what happens to Morris in heaven. Yes. Um, Yes. And I hope, you know, the combination of humour and unexpected uh, portrayals of what might happen in the afterlife contrasted with a, a young woman's very real grief on earth. You know, these two things can go together. Um, a couple of reviews have called my book unique in voice and in style, and I challenge genre, and I, I question what it is to actually, you know, have a novel that reads like that. And I'm fine with that. I I think we combine all these things and play. One of the biggest things I did when I sit down to write was simply play. Play with ideas and questions and um, what happens when somebody lands in an afterlife where, you know, Adam and Eve host a cocktail party and uh, <laughs> Moses is trying to part the waters, you know. It's very unexpected, and I try and make these biblical characters endearing and funny, but they also say something about, um, you know, conventionality of religion. Um, it's okay to question these things. What is it to be holy or to be in heaven? Or what is God like? Um, it's That's not right. sacrilegious to ask these things. It's, it's really important to say it's not a Christian book or a religious book or a book about God, um, because I am an agnostic. I'm simply questioning, and that's what a writer can do. But it's a book about uh, what it is to be human more than anything. What is it to be human and to love and to grieve, and how can we make amends even when we think it might be too late? That's what I hope comes across. Well, very much so, and very much when you close the book, I think, and um, I had a second reading, but and, uh, you know, you always find some more things in a second reading when you've perhaps read very quickly first of a novel. Yes. I always read twice, and um, at least, and I just felt when I closed it, all those thoughts, those serious thoughts came to me to question myself and what I believed in and what I thought. Um, and that's um, a very powerful effect a novel can make, as well as have the imagined energy and, and the original um, ideas. So I think it's a very, very good first novel, and I hope there will be many more, Patricia. Thank you. I'm delighted to hear that, and it's exactly what I tried to do, leave people with questions and wonderings and with laughter and tears, sometimes that was the goal. So I'm I'm glad I achieved it for you. You did. I wonder if um, there's poems in the book. There's some um, poetry. Uh, I haven't read your poetry, but I must look it up now. But um, I wondered if um, how what the difference was from po from writing poetry and writing shorter pieces. Yes, to that's a good question. I'm not a very good poet. I have to say, oh, I play, okay. and I, I've written, uh, there's a poem at the end of the book, that is mine, I wrote it, um, well it's actually Andy's poem, but it came from yes. me. I, I write poetry because I like to play with language, and with poetry there are 
absolutely no rules. I mean, with fiction, you can play with the rules as well. But poetry, even more. And I think having a musical ear, because I'm a singer, I like writing poetry because uh, I can play more with rhythm and with sound. And uh, I really enjoy that. And But, of course, with a long, with a long fiction piece like a book, you're not only think of them, thinking of the musicality of language, which I still like to think of. My sentences still have to sing. But you're thinking about the different voices for your characters and the plot and how you tie it all together and the theme and how the language fits into that. And so, um, in some ways, poetry is harder um, because it almost demands more of you, in a way, because there are no rules and therefore you're That's feeling right. your way. Um, but the book, um, for me, I, as I say, at first I simply played, but then as I tried to structure my very complicated plot, uh, I found that challenging, but also fun, because I love puzzles, and I love <laughs> piecing together clues and things like that. And because I'm an editor and proofreader as well, um, I can be very exacting about getting things absolutely right at the end. And that served me well, I think, with tying up all the little loose ends and uh, solving all the puzzles and answering all the questions, hopefully. Well, you can go um, to Patricia Bell's website, Patricia Bell Author, all one word, dot com. And uh, I'm looking forward to your second novel. This one is um, very top of my list at the moment, The Library of Unfinished Business. It's by Patricia Bell and it's published by Cloud Inc. Press Limited. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.